and welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. Paul has a long list of sins society falls into when God gives us over to a depraved mind. And right smack in the middle of that list is this, disobedient to parents. Remember that while listening to lead teacher Randy Pope as he continues the series Excuses, Excuses, Excuses with part two of God Made Me the Way I Am, which covers Romans chapter 1, verses 26 through 32. Thank you for joining us today. Many of you are aware we're in a series, and the series is entitled Excuses, Excuses, Excuses. We're talking about those excuses out of Romans chapters 1 through 3 that we might use to justify living a life apart from a loving relationship with God. Everybody wants to think they're okay. We want to justify our behavior. And so we come up with excuses. And so the Apostle Paul, writing under inspiration of Scripture, begins to identify four such excuses. We looked at the first two at great length. Then last week, we began the third excuse. Let's review those quickly. Now, I'll tell you now, Message will go about five minutes longer than normal. Uh, Even there, I'm really packing in tight the material for this week. But I'm going to put you at the board a bit today. I want you to follow. There's a bit of outline, and and there's a bit of Scripture, more than normal. But uh, I know that those are listening by audio. I know it sounds very difficult when you can't see. But uh, follow carefully. These are very important. Let's look at the first of the excuses we looked at. God is good. Now, God is so good, he would never, never, never allow me, something bad to happen to me for all eternity, even though I haven't followed him as I know I should have. Romans 1.18 kicks off the text where it says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. If you're new to the series, this message you would want to get, this lays the foundation for everything. All right, we suppress the truth. Now, number two excuse, I really never knew. Oh, I didn't didn't have the truth that I needed. I didn't have enough information necessary, and certainly God's not going to hold me accountable if I really never have heard or understood. And so Paul picks up here in verse 19, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. If you missed those weeks, we spent two weeks on that. We identified some of the challenging points. Well, what about an infant? What about someone who doesn't have the mental capabilities and so forth? Does this text really apply across the board? Then we come to the third excuse that we're getting into again this week. God made me the way I am. Can't help it. I mean, this is the way I was wired. Uh, These are my natural inclinations. I can't help it. Therefore, got a good excuse there. Verses 21 through 32. We're not going to read all that right now in one sitting. I'm going to take you through what is found in that text, what we're identifying as five steps that lead from where we were designed to be to where society as a whole is going today. And you see it's very sequential. 
It's not one big step. It's not something that happens in a short period of time in our own lives, but it's something that takes place over time. So let's look at the first three that we've already talked about. Number one, man's decline begins with irreverence and ingratitude, verses 21 and 22. For even though they knew God, by the way, knew God, remember, does not mean knew in a saving way, but knew in a, I realize the existence of God. They did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. Now we move to the next step, step two. Irreverence and ingratitude give way to idolatry, and we talked about the many different idolatries. 23 and 25 goes on to say, and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and of four-footed animals and crawling creatures. So we just see the progression as it goes. Now we look at step three. Oh, let me go back to verse 25. I didn't read that. Good. Well, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Now we look at verse 24, which is the, four, the third step. Idolatry gives way to impurity. Verse 24 reads, Therefore God gave them over. Key words. God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. I read a quote from someone last week. said, What the heart inappropriately lusts for, the body ultimately pays for. And we're going to see how that continues on. I used the, uh, uh, I talked for a few minutes about the idea of God giving one over. You need to understand that in case you weren't here last week. When God gives us over, it's simply meaning a withdrawing of grace, which we didn't deserve. The very word grace means undeserved. And so it's withdrawing of the grace, the common grace as we call it, different than special grace, which is a saving grace, but a common grace that goes out to mankind. And it's that common grace that enables us to be kind and nice and, I mean, the very things that we like about people who are not followers of God that don't have the power of God at work in their heart. Let me tell you, the truth is there are people who are nicer as non-Christians than people who are true Christians. Shouldn't be, but it is. How do you account for it? Common grace. All he has to do is withdraw it. And so when he withdraws... We see what happens. The next steps are four and five. I'm going to take these together. So I'm going to read them both, and then we'll turn and we'll, uh, we'll discuss. Step four, impurity gives way to degrading passions, verses 26 and 27. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions, for their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way, also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman. And burned in their desire toward one another, men with men, committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. And now we look at the fifth and final step. Degrading passions give way to depraved minds, verses 28 through 32. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind. To do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, 
full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. Now, having read this long list of all the improper things of life, we know good and well that there is one that stands out in all of our thinking because it's the issue of controversy within and outside the church today. And it is the sin of homosexuality. I don't think there's a word up there of all the things that are inappropriate. There's not probably one of us that would argue for the appropriateness of any except that one. Very interesting. I think we'll learn about all of these if we address the one. It is the elephant in the room, and we know that. But what about? But what about? But what about? few things to prepare. I read a, a contrasting poll from 2003, which is when the last time that I taught through Romans, one through three. And now in 2013, the very same questions, 10 years apart, I mean taking every slice of life from religious backgrounds, lack of religion, doesn't matter, age classifications, it took ethnicities, I mean every question, I can't tell you how many questions, same questions asked. It all had to do about the one subject matter of an opinion about what is true and what's not and so forth and so on about the subject of homosexuality. Every single question, the percentage went anywhere from 5 or 6% up to 23%. And every time moving away from what the scriptures have historically been taught to be teaching. Isn't it interesting? I think the real question is not, folks, what do we believe about the subject of homosexuality? That's not the real question. You know what the question is? What do we believe about the Bible? What do we think about the Bible? Some of us say, well, I believe it's the Word of God. But we don't, we don't say that with conviction because we don't even know why we believe it's the Word of God. Foolishly. We say, oh, I believe it I just because I always heard it, think it is. I wonder had we heard that the Koran was the Word of God. Would we be believing it if that's all we've heard? Folks, we want to do our work. We want to do our homework. That's why we keep putting the class through here all the time about, about the Bible is God's Word. We need to understand it. We believe, as the Christian church, that the Bible is the Word of God. We call it the infallible rule for both faith and practice. I can say this, that if we believe that the Bible is 
the infallible Word of God, then with integrity, we ought to say, this is what I believe, whatever we find in the Scripture, if we believe it's the Word of God. See, I find good reason to believe it's the Word of God. The more I research and study, I say, it, it builds my faith. It's not without reason. But once you believe it's the Word of God, then you say, okay, then I'm going to stick to it. I had a pastor when I was a young boy in church. I didn't understand the Bible. I started reading. I came across something that challenged my thinking logically. I just couldn't see how it could be. I went to my parents and I said, explain this. They said, hey, I have no idea. That's why we hire a preacher. Go see the preacher. <laughs> and so I went to see the preacher. And I remember first time in that man's office here, I was a young kid, I looked up and I said, can you help me understand, I'm reading this verse, these verses here and it doesn't make sense to me. I don't like what I'm reading. He looked at me and he said, son, I don't like it either. And I don't understand it. And I'll tell you what I've done. I've torn that page out of my Bible. He said, that cannot be the word of God because it just doesn't make sense. One response, not the right response. What we should be saying is, if I believe it to be the Word of God, then with integrity, I'm going to stand up and say, this is the Word of God. Whether it feels good to me, it seems right, if we believe it's the Word of God. I took a vow when I became a pastor. Bob took the same vow. And that is that we were going to teach the Word of God in its full comprehensive way, what's called the full counsel of God, which says this, when we see something taught in Scripture, given in Scripture, and the best we can tell, this is what it means, then you teach it that way. Say, so it's not a matter of, does it feel good? Do we like it? Is it? No, we can't understand the things of God, not fully. And so that's what we do. The big question, do you believe that the Bible is the Word of God? I have no interest in offending people. I know this is an offensive topic. I talked to the guys in my discipleship group. Many of them are very young guys. I said, you tell me, what percentage of your church here at Perimeter Church, what percent do you think will hold to the historic biblical teaching? The guys, they might have a couple of guys around my age. Only one, really. Others a little bit younger than me. One or two a little younger. And then the others are, are real young, 20s and 30s. Do you know the percentage they gave me? They thought there wouldn't be more than 40% of the people in this church that would hold the historic biblical teaching because they're influenced by their peers, of which nobody does. And they said, I would assume. Who knows what it is? But my interest is never to offend. That's not the job of a preacher. But the job is to teach what the Bible says. And that's all I'm going to do. This is the Word of God. Now, having said that, I'm going to suggest that young people today, like the guys in my group, said to me, you got to help us. We need equipping. Because we don't know what to say in a day and age like today when the vast, vast, vast overwhelming majority says one thing, politically incorrect to say some of the things the Scripture says. And certainly you're going to get opposition. We don't know what to say. I, I mean, you got to help us. And that's why I teach today. I want to help you. And my goal is never to offend. That's not the issue. The goal is to help and to teach. I realize that we've got people here who have loved ones, some very, very close loved ones, 
that are engaged in the, in the, uh, the lifestyle of homosexuality. And some of you are deeply burdened, and I know that. You need to understand, what does God's word say? Just to help you, even how to relate. I know this, that there are quite a number here, I know, who are in, to some degree, a struggle with same-sex attraction. Some are faithfully obeying and walking with God in a real rich way. Others are struggling and not doing so. There are many here that are crying out for help, and they're saying, help me, help me, help me. And I could go through and make a forever series, go through every sin, but I think what we learn of this one will teach us about all of them. It's not that we're saying this is the big bad. No. But we're saying this is one that is now the controversy of our day. So with that in mind, I'm going to address three questions. One, is it wrong? Is homosexuality wrong? And if so, why? Number two, what makes someone a homosexual? And then number three, what should the church's response be? And I know the notes got cut off after number two in your outline. So I'll put it up as we go. And so follow with me and let's address these three questions. And let's just see what does God's word have to say, all right? With that, number one question, is homosexuality wrong? And if so, why? Know this, and particularly young people, young people, please hear this. There are no moral absolutes. There are no moral absolutes if there's not a moral absolute. Now, if I were to write that, I'd put the first word absolute in a lower case. There are no moral absolutes Unless there is, in the second absolute, I'd have a capital A, unless there is an absolute. The point is this. There's no way to say what's truth if there's not a source of truth, a legitimate source of truth. And if we're going to say, well, it's absolute truth, well, that has to come from an absolute, God himself. That's why this great nation is what it is. It's been because this nation was started with a belief in a moral absolute God and that we'll learn what to and not to do and we'll seek to follow that because God says so. You take that away, well, who's to determine? I mean, tell me who's to determine. Is it, is it a dictator that determines and one person makes a decision or the only other option that it's a democracy, and once the vast majority believes that it's okay to kill, then it's okay to kill. Take your friend's life. Take it doesn't matter. No longer your friend, kill him. And so you've got to have an absolute, and it comes from God. Well, the Bible, which we believe is God's, God's absolute truth, it does teach without question that homosexuality is wrong. I have been reading all the response, not all the response, there's so many of the responses of, yeah, well, it's wrong unless, and if you put it within a marriage, it's okay. Well, if you do this, if you do that, if you don't do this, then it's okay. You cannot find that in God's word. If we want to be faithful to scripture, the scripture teaches it's wrong, Old Testament and new. I won't read it now for time's sake, but First uh, Timothy 1, 9 and 10, our own text we read here, but it does say so. Now, we have two options as a Christian not to agree that it's wrong. 
If you say, I don't believe it's wrong, you've done one of two things to do that. Number one, you can move from a high view of Scripture. You can move from, this is not it. You can move from a high view of Scripture. You can do that. But don't say you believe the Bible's the authority if you do. Great illustration would be the United Presbyterian Commission on Sexuality. They, uh, they have a, a statement. This is how they dealt with it. They said God's word is uh, to us is those parts of the Bible that are just and loving, making people more satisfied and fulfilled. That's one way you can deal with it. Say, well, let's just take the word of God and, and let's not have the high view of the word of God. Let's say it's the word of God, but let's make it to what we want it to say. Basically, it says, if it really satisfies you, then it's okay. Hey, I've encountered that. My own father, he left our family for another woman. Left my mother, left our family. Many of you know that. When I finally engaged in conversation with him, he said, I did it because God led me to do it. God led you to do it. Met her in church, and God blessed it at that moment. Well, my father did not have a high view of Scripture. He wouldn't say it was the infallible word of God, not at all. But he wanted to have the Bible as part of his life. He wanted church to be a part of his life. And so you just lose the high view of the Bible. That's one answer. The second answer is simply to say, I will abandon reason. I have a very close friend through the years, led him to the Lord, discipled him, went into Christian ministry, served many years very faithfully. God used him in a great way. Then, very strangely, he left the ministry, no big deal with that, until we began to talk, and he revealed to me that he had surrendered to a gay lifestyle. And I asked him, I said, tell me, spiritually, how do you do this? He said, I think it's okay. I think God's blessed it. I think I'm within the will of God to have my lifestyle. So I asked him the questions that should be asked. I said, well, let me ask you this then, because I knew where he'd come from. I said, I know you used to. Do you still believe that the Bible is God's absolute authority? It is his rule of faith and practice. It is his inspired holy word of God without error. Do you believe that? And I knew he'd say no. He shocked me. He said, I believe it is. I said, well, let me ask you the second question then. Do you believe the Bible teaches that homosexuality is sin, is wrong? He said, yes, I do. I said, can we go over this one more time? <laughs> That's literally what I said, and I did. I said, you just said that you believe the Bible is God's authority, right? And it's correct. That's his authority. Yes. And you believe the Bible says that it is wrong, right? Yes. And you say that you're engaged in that which is wrong, but it's okay, right? He said, that's right. He's escaped from reason. He said, I'm abandoning reason. He said, you know, although I believe that's true, I also believe it's true that God wants to be happy. I believe he knows this is what makes me happy, and therefore, that's what he wants. And my thought, I said, if I, if I felt making me happy would be to kill people, would it make it okay? Or would I go back and revert to the Bible and say, even though it might make me feel good right now because my desire has me wanting that, that is that the way it works? No. So you have to do one or the other. Now, we know the scriptures do teach. We've already read a few of the, at least one of the scriptures and mentioned another. So why is it wrong? 
And this we need to understand, folks. We've got to understand why God does things too. Can't always understand, but he gives us some insights. Let me suggest two reasons. Number one, because God designed sex as a tool for building a marriage and uniting male and female as one flesh. Genesis 2.24, I want to read this to you because this is an important foundational text. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, shall be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Folks, I could take an hour teaching through early Genesis and build such an unusually strong case for why homosexuality would not be in the interest of mankind, not to any individual, because the ideal is this idea of unity. He takes two opposites from creation and says, I'm going to take you as opposites. I'm going to put you together to make one. You're going to find out what unity is. And I'm using that even as a model for the unity of two very other, me, God, and you, mankind, and I'm going to bring us together in union. And even the male-female marriage, man and woman, will be the picture of the union that the church has with her head, the Christ. And it's the way it should be. But never two sames coming together. It violates the very nature of what he's saying here. Number two reason, very important reason, because taken out of its intended design, sexual activity damages relationships and robs its users of its intended benefits. I have deleted so much material because it would take you through lunchtime, and I knew you would not like that. <laughs> and whatever it means, it's, it doesn't matter anyway, but I can show you all kind of statistical data that I think is very valid. And I've read the criticisms of the data, which I think is very unvalid. The unusual number of, of surveys and things that show that sexual activity outside a marriage with a male and female, I'm not just saying male and female, but in marriage, take sexual activity outside of it and look what happens to the longevity of a relationship. I mean, it's staggering to read the statistics of how few monogamous homosexual partnerships, the length of those, it's just like they don't last long. Marriage has its own problems, but you go to a whole nother degree when you take it outside of marriage. And so certainly, we can say it over and over in so many different ways. It cannot provide unity. I bet you every person here who's had sexual activity outside of marriage, not one of us would say, boy, did it benefit my present marriage. Am I glad I did that? Never hear it. You know, I think God just loves his creation enough that he says, don't. Parents, you know what it is to tell your child don't, don't you? And you know the response is say, you just don't love me. And you look at them and say, no, if you only knew. I love giving you what you want. But I'm not giving it to you because I know it's going to hurt you. I'm saying no because I love you. Do you understand that God does everything he does when he says, no, you can't, or oh, you must? Always for one of three reasons. Either to keep 
to keep us from being hurt by somebody else, to keep us from hurting somebody else, number two. Number three, to keep us from hurting ourselves. He just says, I love you too much. He's saying, I want my creation to experience the ultimate trust. I want you to uh, complete trust. I I want you to understand what it is to, to, uh, to have an absolute loyalty, total vulnerability. Let's have a list of things written here. Oneness, commitment, uh, respect, devotion. The list goes on and on. He says, I love you to experience the fruit of union and unity. And it's designed for two opposites to come together. It's the very heart and reason. If you wanted to summarize the biblical teaching, I was reading a book that I'm going to suggest that you get. It's a little booklet, really. It's a small little book. It's entitled Same-Sex Partnerships. It's by the renowned, I mean the, the favorite theologian through the last you know, 70 years, 60 years, John R. Stott. There's none more respected. There's none better. Everybody, oh, John Stott. He writes this book on same-sex relationships is the t- or partnerships is the title. And this is what he says in that little book. He summarizes it with three things. Heterosexuality is a divine creation. You could teach on that forever. Heterosexual marriage is a divine institution throughout Scripture. Heterosexual fidelity is the divine intention found throughout Scripture. He ends one statement by saying, homosexuality is a breach of all three of these divine purposes. Let's move to question number two. Here's the hot, hot one today. This is the big discussion. What makes a person a homosexual? I, I certainly grieve over what I hear some Christians saying and writing about this question. I think it may damage us more than help us. I'm going to suggest what four, four common and one not so common answer to that question. Number one, the result of a physiological difference. When I talk about that, I'm talking about inborn trait, genetic factors. There are many today that will just argue strong. There is absolutely no evidence anywhere whatsoever that it has any influence. Da, 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 da. No. I contacted, I contacted a dear friend of mine. I would bet he would be in the top five geneticists in the world. I mean, renowned, renowned, renowned. Travels the world, you know, all on genetics. And I said, you tell me. Christian. I said, you tell me. Any genetic factor in homosexuality, in your opinion? He says, can't prove it, but I'd say so, yeah. I sure would think so. Me too. I I would have no reason not to believe that. And thus the argument, hey, I got a good excuse. God made me the way I am. This is the way I am. It's not a sufficient response, though, to say physiological. Let's go to a second. We add to that. The result of a physiological or sociological disorder. Uh, Here we're talking about... um, a disordered family uh, relationship, uh, sexual abuse, uh, some kind of um, seduction, and so forth. My experience dealing with those that have come to me for help in this arena, I found it very often that one of these is a factor. Very often when they say, I've been attracted since I was so young, and, and you know, I don't remember anything but just having the attraction for the same sex. That's kind of the way I was from day one. Uh, why, why, why? And I'll 
probe in and I'll ask some questions and find this to be the very reason right here that is a, at, at least a part to play in the issue. So let's not write it off and say, no, not true. It is a factor. Certainly it's a factor. Number three, the result of a sexual decision. Are there those that come to a place to say, you know what? I'm not attracted to the same sex, but hey, let's give it a try. Well, sure, there's some, but I'm not meeting those people. I don't think that's the, the, you know, the norm for sure. So let's not say that is, though it can be. We'll factor it as, as one of many factors. But number four, the result of, a, of spiritual disobedience. And this concerns me that, that people don't add this one to the list. And it concerns me that sometimes they make it the only answer in their list. Spiritual disobedience. And when I talk about spiritual disobedience... I'm not talking about just the sexual decision, but spiritual disobedience, just running away from God for a far. God gives them up. But as important as that can play as a factor, I don't think that's fair to say, and there's the answer, period. I would suggest number five, the result of our fall, that is our spiritual disobedience in the bigger picture, Our fall, meaning in Adam and Eve, and several weeks ago, I dipped into chapter 5. I think it was in the first message. I dipped into chapter 5. Hey, how come we get accused for what Adam did? And until you answer that question, please go back to get the podcast if you've not heard that. But yes, we are sinful because of what our forefather did, but we are responsible for what our forefather did. What? Go back, study. You don't understand the gospel till you get that. Corporate personality as we define it. But when you begin to understand it is the result of our fall and a combination of the above, the previous four, yes, let's put them together. Who knows that combination? But it is a combination. One person writes this way. Let me give you a quote. Our basic humanity means we will be addicted. That means our humanity, our fall. We will be addicted, but our individual Heredities and experiences have much to say about the specific forms our addictions will take. Hey, if you've got an addiction to alcohol, do you think maybe there could be a, you know, a physiological factor, a heredity of some sort, genetic? Well, yeah, we do say that. We say, well, it's fine. Then you can, you can be an alcoholic. It's okay. Won't hurt you. Won't hurt others. Good for society. Who cares? No, we'd say you fight it. But yes, that is your disposition. But it's also your sin if the Bible says it is wrong to get drunk, right? Do do men, do do you have a disposition from the fall to take what should be an appropriate attraction and turn into lust for the opposite sex? Yeah. Well, let it go then? No. No, not just, okay, that's fine. Let's do it. It's no, I need to learn. How do I battle this raging fire for some? And young, young people, some of you, you know that raging fire. You don't just say, well, it's the fire and I can't help it. And I don't want it, but it's there. No. You keep it contained. You seek to deal with it biblically and appropriately. This is the best way I can suggest it. I think of it as like a table. You put a table here and you have four legs on the table. And I can sit on that table, assuming the, the legs are strong and all. I can sit on that table, put weight on it, won't hurt it at all. It won't crash. Everything stays normal. I can remove but one leg, just take off one leg on that table, and if I sit on that table in appropriate places, 
It's going to crash immediately. And there's going to be a fall. Something bad's going to happen. I think of it like this. Some of us, those first three, four factors, not even an issue for us. That is, we have four legs standing strong. Do we sin? There's the weight on the table. Do we sin? Oh, yeah, that push. We press and press with the sin, pressing against God, doing things we shouldn't do and so forth. Yes, yes, we do that. But the table stays up. Things stay normal. But somebody else can come along and have one of those legs removed. Maybe it's a family disorder. Maybe it's a, you know, a seduction. Maybe it's who knows what it is. You pull that one leg out. Not their fault. The leg's gone. You pull that leg out, that table's going to stand up with three legs. But all you got to do is put some pressure, your own sin, it's going to crumble. And that's what leads us to the third and final point, the love and compassion that we should be showing. Because folks, sometimes our sin on our table of life is stronger and heavier than the sin of the lesbian or the gay who has put their weight on their table, theirs crashes and ours doesn't. So let's look quickly at the last. What should the church's response be? I know that we as a church should be accepting the fact holistically we're guilty of overreacting. I had a, pa- I had a, a friend of mine, a fellow I was just getting to meet actually at the time, and I, I, I met him and I said, um, um, you know, he told me his wife's name was Gay. I said, well, that's got to be difficult in a day like today. He said, oh, you have no idea. And he said, in fact, he told me a story, humorous story. He said, I was at a, a church retreat, and I, the first time I'd ever gone, as men were together, they paired us up. I didn't know the guy I was staying with. I didn't know the church really that well. I'd never been on a retreat, and I was new. And, and um, so I met the guy. It was wintertime. It was a beautiful place, and he's getting undressed in the, bath, in the bedroom, and I'm in the bathroom, and, and uh, I'm getting ready in there, and we're just having chat across the, the wall there and couldn't even see each other, and and I said, man, this is amazing. What a nice place that you guys have retreats at at this church. Where I used to go, man, we went to old dumpy places, but this is a, a nice resort. Oh, we love this place. And then the fellow that my friend says to him, yeah, I just have one regret, and that is that you're not gay. <laughs> well, he didn't even think in his mind that he hadn't told him his wife's name. <laughs> it was routine for him. And... He didn't think about it, but he heard all this clutter and stuff was changing and all, and, and, and he walks around, he looks around, and the guy's getting dressed again. He's put back on his pants, and he's putting his, he put his jacket on, and he said, what? And all of a sudden, no, 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 no. Let me explain. My wife's name is Gay. And he goes, mm-hmm, right. He slept all night covered with his clothes on, his jacket, fully dressed. Would you say it's a little overreaction? And that just in a broadened way just says that's the church to a great degree, unfortunately. How do you respond? Maybe it's ignore or obsessed with or intolerant. Maybe compromise your beliefs. Let me say we have two obligations. Number one is to exhibit love, the love and compassion of Christ. That's the answer. If we don't, it tells us this, we have not yet really seen our own sin and our own forgiveness. You tell me a sin that is so deplorable that it does not warrant our love and compassion. I love the way one person put it. 
He said, we share meals with gluttons. We shop with the greedy. We share compliments with the vain. We vegetate with the slothful. Another person writes, we must be ready to invite gays and lesbians to take their seats next to us who are liars, gossips, and materialists. So you think that this sin is worse than all others? You think, uh, well, let me tell you, every one of us are guilty. We're all guilty. Why wouldn't we be the people of guilt who have been shown freedom and release and God's acceptance? Why wouldn't we do the same to other people? And doing so, we should say the place should be open and ready and willing at any time to accept anybody. Gay, lesbian, unchurched, unrepentant, bring them on. Absolutely. At the same time, we follow 1 Corinthians 5. It says, now, if it's a so-called believer, somebody who's got a membership in the church, somebody that's been approved as a follower of Jesus and is unrepentant, that person, it says, don't even eat with such a one. You know what they're going to say to that? Well, that's not loving. Oh, no. My friend that I was telling you about who admitted that he was homosexual and he just you know, had the unreasoning, you know, the, didn't reason well. He looked at me and he said, now, you're not going to be like other Christians, are you? You're not going to just reject me over this, are you? I mean, we're going to stay as close to friends and we can socialize and do stuff together like we always have and we can be good friends, still keep up, can't we? I looked at him and I said, no. It's going to be different. The day, though, you admit it's sin, you repent, or the day that you say it's sin and you don't repent, but you lose your rightness with the church, and you, because church, his church wasn't going to take him out of the church. He was just going to keep going on and going on and going on. And I said, the scriptures say, not even to eat with such a one. He says, you don't love me. He said, you have no clue. You're my friend. I'd love to be with you and will be with you to help you in any form or fashion. But I'll tell you this, just say we'll socialize and assume that nothing exists, everything's fine. You're in Scripture, what's called a so-called believer. And once again, though you may not, I'm going to follow what it says, and I'm going to do it for your good. He said, well, that's not love. I said, you know what? I'm not surprised that you consider it not love. But as long as I believe it's the best thing for you, I'm going to do what's best for you. And I think that is love. It's a whole different way of looking at it. The other thing that we must do, I said two things that we're obligated to. The second is fearlessly proclaiming the truth of God's word. We, we're going to be labeled unloving. I know that. I, I got a letter of harsh criticism one time because I had said something unkind about Satanists, and I was not positive about Satanists. <laughs> I mean, I can get criticized for everything, trust me. <laughs> but when I was the, that was the level I'd never seen before. And I said, you know what? We're in a weird day today, aren't we? <laughs> Jesus, I know, was considered narrow-minded bigot. I know he was, and we will too. But the answer is truth plus compassion. You hear that? Truth plus compassion. I've got to close. I told you it was going to go a little long. I was going to say more about this conclusion, and it grieves me that I can't get into because this is really the answer. This is how, where we go. I'm going to take 
the body here of this material. I was already planning to do it, and I'm going to make a message at the very last of the series. And it's going to talk about this progression and how do we come out of it? How do we pull out in our daily experience as a culture, as individual people? How do we do that? I'm going to leave you with the three words that I'm going to delve into at great length. These three words are simply these. Number one, repent. Repentance is coming back to the open arms of a loving father saying his love is good enough, right? Remember that? It's repentance. We'll talk about that. But what you know of repentance, just hold on to that one. Number two, you got to think about in terms of reveal. Bob, during the service, uh, during the worship time, was talking about the importance of relationships and friendships. Let me tell you, of course, we need people to help us. That's the beauty of our journey groups. Get in a journey group where you're invited in confidentiality to run deep together, to form a brotherhood, to form a sisterhood and say, we're going to work together and to clean each other's hearts out. We'll help each other in the cleaning job. God's spirit does the ultimate sanctification and cleansing, but he uses us in the process as the laborers. You got to have people. You don't need to tell everybody everything, but have a few. You can tell them everything and go where you need to go with them. And the third and final word is rely. You've got to rely on Christ. You've got to appropriate the power of God's Spirit. Go back to Romans in chapter 6 and understand that beautiful chapter. Rely. If you'll take those three words, you think through them. Try to just go over them and over them saying, God, help me understand these. I'll help you when we come to the end of the series. But it's going to take you back to the cross. And you're going to see that you can't have any without the work of Christ. Any of these three, you go to him and say, oh, Jesus, your help. Once you are helped and healed, for the homosexual, do you think there's still going to be same-sex attraction? There can be a healing, but often God doesn't heal completely, but he will give you freedom. And there's a distinction, and we'll talk about that. There is freedom and power over all sin. Have hope. Whatever in the list that you're battling with, whatever your idolatries from last week we talked about, there is hope, and it's found through the work of Jesus. Go to him. Plead his mercy. He'll forgive you. And once you're forgiven, that's when you forgive others, and you live in love and compassion. May God bless us in a difficult age and an extremely difficult subject. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we pray, grant us to have wisdom. Most of all, give us a heart of truth to commit to what you say and of compassion. May we show the compassion of our Jesus. And so God uses the church. May this be a place in the community that people say they love gays and lesbians and fill in the blank. They love well because they give what is needed. God grant that, we pray. Give us hearts. Take us to the cross. May we fall in love more with you, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and find other messages from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.